Well, amen. He is Lord of all. And I'm reminded what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? And here we come to listen to what the Lord says so that we might do it by His grace as we turn to the Word of God. And we return again to Colossians chapter 1, our, our study of Paul's philosophy of ministry, a philosophy of ministry that, as we've seen, centers around discipleship. And so I'll begin once again by reading that text for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul writes, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. And we've been working through the five elements of Christian discipleship that they outline. To the first two elements, the, which I've dubbed the scheme and the substance of discipleship. We find the scheme at the end of verse 28 into the first part of verse 29. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man with all wisdom, so that we, present, we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor. The goal and, and aim and purpose of discipleship is to see each and every believer who belongs to Jesus grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So they'll finally be brought to perfection in glorification as they stand before Christ as this redeemed and purified bride having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but holy and blameless such as is the Lord Jesus is worthy of. Jesus said in Matthew 10:25, it's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. And that really is what discipleship is. It is the process by which the people of Jesus become like Jesus. And particularly, it's how our brothers and sisters in Christ can come along one another and aid one another in becoming like Jesus. Discipleship is fellow Christians helping one another to follow Jesus more faithfully. Christians who are concerned to be faithful to Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations are not content with getting people to profess faith in Christ and then live lukewarm spiritual lives for the next 30 years. They are not satisfied with a church, a big church full of people who remain ignorant of the Scriptures and the great doctrines of the faith, who remain spiritually weak and uncommitted. Discipleship means that we don't just care about getting people through the door of Christianity so that they eke into heaven by the skin of their teeth. No, it means we care about spiritual and theological maturity and long with Paul to present every believer complete in Christ. And then having seen the scheme, we examine the substance of discipleship. How do we work toward presenting every Christian complete in Christ? What do we do to ensure that every Christian is growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? And Paul answers in verse 28, we proclaim Him. That's what we do. The very sum and substance of of Christian discipleship is the proclamation of Christ to one another because when Christ is proclaimed, His glory is displayed. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold His glory, that we are transformed into His image. And so all the ministry that takes place in a local church needs to be centered around the proclamation of Christ to one another. The consecutive expository preaching of Scripture, the individual counseling, the Sunday school classes, the small group Bible studies, fellowship times, and just everyday conversations with one another. The heart and soul of all of that is we proclaim Him. See, because we we become what we behold, for good or for ill. And when we proclaim Christ to one another, we hold up the beauty of His glory for the saints to behold. And that is how then the body of Christ is built up and edified and brought to maturity, becoming like Christ, because the sight of Christ transforms them. We also observe that the sentence doesn't end with we proclaim Him. Paul expounds further on what it means uh, to proclaim Christ. And he he says, he breaks it down into two main functions. He says, we proclaim Him 
admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So the substance of discipleship, the proclamation of Christ, is carried out through the ministry of admonition and the ministry of teaching. So on Saturday, we devoted our time to Scripture's teaching concerning the ministry of admonition. We focused on how the Lord commands His people to give and receive and even invite rebuke, invite admonition. See, we don't come into the Christian life perfected in every sense. The perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account, and as regards our position, we are seen. But as regards our practice, we are yet sinners who battle with remaining sin in our flesh, and so we always have to be bringing our practice into conformity to our position, always fighting to live as we have been recreated to be. As brothers and sisters, we need each other to expose the sin in our lives that we can't see for ourselves. And we need to be eager to have those sins exposed in our lives so that we might be made fit to see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Because there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so a key feature of genuine Christian discipleship is the ministry of admonition. And then yesterday morning we considered how the ministry of teaching is absolutely indispensable to discipleship. And that creates three responsibilities for us as believers to committed to discipleship. We are to teach one another to know the truth. That is, we are to gird up the loins of our minds and devote ourselves to the careful study of the Scriptures and thereby to arrive at sound doctrine. We need to love the Lord our God with all our minds so that our minds won't be led astray by, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We need to recognize that Careful thinking is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith. And so we must devote ourselves to being good students of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must also teach one another to love the truth that we know. We cannot be content with intellectual notions that don't affect our hearts. We must not be satisfied with seeing God's glory only. We must rejoice in it. We must delight in it. And if our hearts are dull and and backward so that our affections for God and His truth don't catch up to our knowledge of God and His truth, we need to go to work on our hearts and we need our brothers and sisters to help tune our hearts to sing His grace and not just acknowledge His grace. We can't merely analyze and assess. We must admire and adore. More than students, we must be worshipers. And then finally, we must teach one another to practice the truth. In teaching one another to obey all that Christ commanded. We need to live life alongside one another. We have to have our lives as open books before our brothers and sisters so that they can see and observe how we navigate the Christian life. We need to observe faithfulness in the lives of saints more mature than us. And we need to model faithfulness to saints less mature than us. That's the substance of discipleship. We proclaim Him admonishing and teaching. And so that brings us this morning to the third element of discipleship that we glean from Colossians 1, 28 and 29. In addition to the scheme and in addition to the substance of discipleship, we have number three, the scope of discipleship. The scope of discipleship. To whom in the local church does the responsibility of discipleship extend? Which members of the body of Christ are within the purview of discipleship? Look again at verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. No one is accepted. The scope of discipleship is universal with respect to Christ's church. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. And therefore, you are responsible to ensure that you are being discipled and that your spiritual leaders are going to be held accountable because your spiritual leaders are going to be held accountable by Christ for how they discipled you. Some people in the church here are the responsibilities that are implied in discipleship of proclaiming Christ, of giving, receiving, inviting, rebuke, and admonition, and knowing the truth, loving the truth, practicing the truth. And they think... Well, yeah, I mean, that's what Scripture talks about for those really committed Christians, right? 
the really spiritual ones who read their Bibles every day and pray every day and, and who speak up in Bible study and who, who maybe hold, who hold some sort of office in the church. But I, I'm just a regular, normal guy. I mean, I'm a Christian, for sure, but that's like a whole different level over there. No, not at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are to admonish every man, Paul says. We are to teach every man so that we may present every man complete in Christ. As you can tell, the repetition is emphatic. One commentator says this verse is remarkable for its emphasis on universality. And it's true. The, the Greek word pas, which means every or all, occurs four times in just this one verse. And you just can't escape the intended stress. Every man, every man, every man. Now, I, I think that we tend to hear that emphasis on universality within the church. And I think our instinct is to feel burdened by that responsibility. As if Paul's intent was that no one can escape the scope of discipleship ministry, even if they wanted to. But what's interesting is, in the original historical context in which Paul wrote this, he intended this to be a declaration, not of responsibility, though it certainly implies that, but of privilege. See, the churches of Colossae and Laodicea had been uh, assaulted with this false teaching of a group of teachers that we might call proto-Gnostics. Full-blown Gnosticism was a later development, but a similar philosophy had already been making the rounds in the Greco-Roman world by the middle of the first century. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. And what characterizes these Gnostic groups is that they believe that there was a special spiritual wisdom or a secret knowledge that was only revealed to a select few. There was some ecstatic religious experience, some indoctrination or initiation that was only enjoyed by the elite and the rest of the uninitiated were dependent upon these super spiritual guru types for any hope of spiritual growth or maturity. But against that background, Paul says he admonishes every believer and he teaches every believer so that he might present not just the initiated, but every believer complete in Christ. One commentator captures it well. He says, Certain teachers professed a form of wisdom higher than anything taught by Paul and his colleagues, a form of wisdom which not everyone could appreciate and which therefore marked off those who accepted it and affected its jargon as intellectually superior to others. On, on the contrary, say Paul and Timothy, in the proclamation of Christ, we bring all wisdom within the reach of all. And our purpose is to present each believer before the face of God in a state of complete spiritual maturity. There should be no exceptions. There are no heights in Christian attainment which are not within the reach of all by the power of heavenly grace. Read that last sentence again. There, sh there are no exceptions. There are no heights in Christian attainment which are not within the reach of all by the power of heavenly grace. And actually, we should note that Paul says more than we admonish all believers and we teach all believers. He uses the singular, which you could translate as each man. He uses the singular to show that each person individually was the special object of his shepherding care. He says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, where he speaks of his ministry among the believers in Thessalonica. And he says, you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father does his children. And so, so far from being a, a burdensome responsibility, as if everybody, nobody's left out, I got all of you by the throat. The, this universal scope of discipleship within the church of Christ is regarded the highest of privileges against the backdrop of guru teachers who are saying, you can't come too close to the secret knowledge. No Christian is excluded from the pastoral care of discipleship in the local church. This ministry unto maturity and growth and sanctification and greater knowledge of Christ is available to each and every believer in Jesus. But that doesn't in any way undermine the fact that with that great privilege does come responsibility. And that just as you fall within the scope of the beneficiaries of, dis of discipleship, so you must also consider yourself a benefactor in discipleship. As you not only receive admonition and instruction, but as you admonish each one and teach each one so that you can help present each one complete 
in Christ. And that responsibility of aiding in the sanctification of the church, of, of laboring for the purity of Christ's bride, does not belong to an elite few. It does not belong to those who are, or, who are ordained only. It belongs to each and every member of the body of Christ. Let's look at this from another couple passages. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the great chapter where Paul's giving instruction concerning spiritual gifts in the church. And he says, starting in verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Varieties of effects, but the same God who works all in all. Verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see, to each individual believer, God gives these varying spiritual gifts for the common good. And as each member uses their gifts, the church as a whole is blessed. Skip down to verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, God has given each member in the local church a certain function that that member can perform especially well. And without the member doing its part, Paul asks, where would the body be? I mean, what would happen? It's almost unthinkable. The eye can't say that it doesn't need the hand. The head can't say it doesn't need the feet. What's this mean? Brothers and sisters, it means that we need each other. We need to benefit from each member's unique spiritual gifts. And so we need to be devoted to, to serving one another so that each one may be presented perfect in Christ. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Paul's just spent the first three chapters of his letter instructing the Ephesians concerning the privileges of being a Christian, about who God has called them to be in Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The Father's chosen us. The Son's redeemed us. The Spirit has sealed us. You remember who you were, but God made you alive. He's joined you together, though you were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, now you're one new man in the church, and, and the mystery of the ages is finally revealed in the height and the, the breadth and the depth of Christ's love. This is all yours in Christ. And then in chapter 4, he turns to exhort them to live consistently with that identity, that they should match their high calling with high conduct. And beginning in verse 7, he, he begins teaching about how that holy conduct is going to happen in the church. Namely, as each member exercises the spiritual gifts that God has given them. So let's start in verse 11. Paul writes, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So these are the gifts, right? These are the gifts that were in operation at, in that day, and some of which are continuing to be the op in operation in this day. Pastors, teachers, certainly. Now, for what purpose does Christ give gifts in the church? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Watch this. To the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by winds and or by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ now listen to this verse 16 from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What a text that is. If we, how, how is the body going to grow and be built up? 
How are we going to attain to the unity of the faith and to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ? How's that going to happen? When the pastor preaches every day of the week. When the elders are discipling 50 people each. No. When each individual part of the body is working properly unto the common good of the whole. When each individual member is using the spiritual gifts that God has given him or her so that he might present every believer perfect in Christ. You see, this discipleship, this sanctification is a community project. The scope of discipleship extends to each member of Christ's church. And so you have to ask yourself, am I investing in the body? Am I a good, being a good steward of the gifts that God has given me by employing them to bless and edify my brothers and sisters in the local body of believers that Christ has called me to be in? Am I committed to the ministry of discipleship in and through my local church? And if I'm not, here's the big question, what am I going to do about it? The scheme of discipleship is to present every believer complete in Christ. The substance of discipleship is to proclaim Christ by admonishing and teaching every man with all wisdom. And the scope of discipleship extends to each individual Christian. Each individual member of the body of Christ. There are no exceptions. You are either in the discipleship process, both being discipled and discipling others, or you are disobedient. That brings us to the fourth element of discipleship that we find in this text. And that is, number four, the strain of discipleship. The strain. Discipleship takes work. And we see that in the two key words in verse 29. Paul says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Labor and striving. Now, the word labor is translated from the Greek word kopiao, and kopiao is the, the form of the noun, verb form of the noun kapos, which means a blow or a beating. So, kopiao signified working to the point of weariness and exhaustion as if one had been repeatedly struck, as if one had been beaten. And we say that even in English, don't we? We work hard, we, we, and then we stand up straight, we wipe our brow, we take, we take a deep breath and we say, whew. I am beat. That's this word. One commentator remarked, it was the proper word for physical tiredness induced by work, exertion. It denoted severe labor. He says the emphasis is on the great effort expended by one who labors unceasingly for the congregation's welfare. And Paul often referred to his ministry this way. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, The grace of God and his calling to gospel ministry didn't prove vain, but, he says, I labored even more than all of them. Same word. In Galatians 4.11, his concerns about the Galatian believers' tolerance of heresy, he says, he fears he had labored over them in vain. His ministry among them was labor. And then there's one text that illustrates this point so well that I want to offer an extended comment on it. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul's calling the Philippians to maintain Christian holiness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And he exhorts them in Philippians 2.16 to hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, so that I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And there's our word kopiao, toil. But, verse 17, he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And I think this beautifully weds the concepts of the strain of discipleship and, and self-sacrifice in ministry by, by putting the word kopiao, toil, alongside the, the word picture of the drink offering. Paul says that the entirety of his life of ministry in which he's been running and toiling and laboring, Philippians 1.25, for the progress and joy of the Philippians' faith. 
He says all, all of his labors in the ministry are like the labors of a priest endeavoring to offer a holy sacrifice to God. And the Philippians are his sacrifice that he wants to present to God that will please God. And just like the sacrifice in the Old Testament needed to be blemishless, so Paul endeavors to present a blemishless sacrifice to the Lord in the Philippians, in the Gentiles. And then in the, in the Old Testament, the drink offering was what was poured out on top of an Old Testament sacrifice to complete it. And as Paul waits in prison to find out whether or not Nero is going to sentence him to execution, he says that if indeed this sacrificial ministry of his will result and end in his martyrdom, he says he'll rejoice. Because his death in the service of Christ and for the sake of the Philippians' progress and holiness will be to him the drink offering that completes his sacrificial offering of the Philippians to God. He says he'll rejoice because his martyrdom would be a fitting climax of all of his apostolic labors. It's as if he says, oh, my dear Philippians, if the Lord has decreed that my life be poured out as a drink offering that seals and sanctifies the offering of your holy living so that you become an acceptable sacrifice to God. I'm not made sorrowful by my death. I rejoice. My life could not be better spent. It could not be better sacrificed than in the cause of your holiness, which abounds to the glory of God. And you don't detect a hint of backwardness in those words. Paul's attitude in this toilsome labor of the priestly ministry of the gospel is not one of begrudging obedience and miserable duty. He says he's rejoicing. He's saying, if my blood must be spilled so that God will get what he's worthy of in your lives, then in the language of 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What greater privilege can there be for, my, for me to lay down my life to ensure that the Lord receive the pure bride that He is worthy of? See, that is the strain of discipleship. But we've got to remember, Paul was not only willing to die once for his ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. This laying down of his life was not merely surrendering himself to death at the hands of Nero. Paul was willing to die daily for the sake of the growth of the people of God. That's precisely what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And Romans 8, 36, for your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And 2 Corinthians 4, 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So, death works in us, but life in you, Corinthians. And I'm sure there were mornings when Paul asked himself if it was all worth it. But if he ever felt like giving up, even for a split second, he remembered that the joy to be had in fellowship with Christ as a sharer in His sufferings was so satisfying that he joyfully took up his cross daily, died to himself daily, and followed the Savior. And friends, this is the kind of joyful self-denial that must characterize your life. You need to wake up every morning and bring your mind into subjection under the Word of God. Then you must make a conscious decision by the grace of God and because of the delightfulness of the glory of Christ that you are going to die to yourself and for the sake of following Jesus and serving His people, you are going to lay your life on the altar. That you are going to present your bodies, Paul says in Romans 12, as, and your mind and your time and your energy as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. Your lives are to be a living martyrdom, a continual crucifixion of your own comforts and preferences so that the laying down of your lives is not necessarily dying for one another, you know, running and pushing one another out of an oncoming train. No, but living for one another, 
but dying daily for one another. That's the drink offering. That's your life being poured out. It's not, I pour my life out all at once, but my life is being poured out constantly as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of your brothers and sisters. This itself is Jesus' call to discipleship. Luke 9.23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so if you're going to be a disciple, you need to be actively engaged in the strain of making disciples. But Paul doesn't only labor. He also strives. For this purpose also I labor, striving. And striving translates the verb agonizomai, from which we get the word agony or agonize. It means to fight. It means to struggle. It means to engage in a physical conflict in which weapons were used. It's the word used for fighting in John 18, 36, where Jesus says, if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would be fighting. That's military conflict. The word also has the connotation of engaging in an athletic contest. It's used that way in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, where Paul says, everyone who competes in the games, and competes in the games is a phrase translated from the word agonizomai, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So agonizomai has this implication, as one commentator said, of giving oneself in the utmost effort with all the self-discipline required to achieve this goal. And that imagery of the athletic contest in 1 Corinthians 9.25 sparks an interesting point. Again, Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it, the athletes do it, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So the wreath refers to that crown of laurels that was placed on the victor's head as he stood on the platform to receive his prize. Well, throughout the New Testament, the, apostle takes, the apostles take that image of the wreath and they use it as a metaphor for the believer's final reward in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul calls it the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. James calls it the crown of life in James 1.12. Peter calls it the unfading crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. So this is our heavenly reward, this crown. But in two passages of the New Testament, Paul calls the believers whom he had labored and agonized over, he calls the believers themselves his crown. In Philippians 4.1, are you there? We're not too far from there, right? Philippians 4.1, he calls those precious brothers and sisters of his, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, he says to the believers in that church, for who is our hope? Who is our joy? Who is our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul saying that his great reward, the crown of laurels on his head, the, the proof of his victory in this athletic contest that is the strain of discipleship, the very ground of His glory and His joy in the presence of Christ at His coming is the spiritual maturity of the believers He's invested in. They themselves, in the progress of their holiness, will be His crown. And that's precisely what He said back in Philippians 2.16. Turn back. We looked at it a moment ago. He wants them to stand out as stars shining in the night sky so that in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory. I'll have reason to rejoice because I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Do you hear what he's saying? Philippians, if you continue in the path of obedience so that Christ is formed in you to the extent that you shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, when the Lord Jesus comes, I will not be found as one who ran but was not crowned. I will not be found as one who has nothing to show for all my endeavors but sore muscles. If you Philippians continue to be monuments of the power of the gospel in practical holiness, in the last day I'll wear the victor's crown as a minister who is used to realize the great end 
of the ministry. And my friends, we need to have the very same view of one another. That our fellow believers are our joy and our crown of exaltation on the day of Christ. Now, sure, we are not each other's pastors, all of us. We are not each other's spiritual leaders like Paul was to the Philippians and the Thessalonians. But we are all called to this ministry of discipleship. We are all called to be laboring diligently to aid in the sanctification of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we just learned, the Lord has given you to the members of your local church. And He has given the members of your local church to you so that we might encourage one another and sharpen one another and stir one another up to greater likeness to Christ, to greater hatred of sin, to greater love for righteousness. He has given us one to another to get into each other's kitchen, to ask the hard questions, to give of our time and our energy, to be devoted to one another in prayer, to model for one another how to put off sin and put on righteousness, and 10,000 other things. Alexander McLaren The great Scottish preacher said that the crown of victory laid on the locks of a faithful teacher is the character of those whom he has taught. And I would broaden that out to apply it to all of us. The crown of victory laid upon the locks of a faithful believer is the character of those brothers and sisters whom the Lord had brought into his life, whom he poured himself into, and whom he labored to see mature in holiness. Friends, are you investing in the lives of your fellow believers so that in the day of Christ you will have a number of brothers and sisters who will be your joy and your crown of exaltation? If not, then before you leave the Impact Bible Conference with the thought of that glorious day of Christ in the horizon of your mind, you need to ask yourself, what are you going to do to change that? Friends, how big of a reward do you want? Do you want a little reward? Then invest little into the body of Christ. Do you want a great reward? Then invest greatly into the body of Christ. What in your life will you have to sacrifice? What priorities need to be changed? What in the schedule needs to be moved around so that you can invest in your crown? How can you more faithfully give yourself to spending and being spent? Does it mean getting involved in a small group Bible study so that you can surround yourself with the kinds of relationships in that sort of intimate small group setting? Is it making time in your schedule to meet with that brother or sister in your life for personal discipleship? Is it opening your home to fellow believers and forging true friendships and relationships in a real life-on-life context? Whatever you do, don't forfeit your crown of exaltation. Give yourself to the strain of discipleship. You say, but Mike, where am I going to find the strength for that? I mean, laboring unto exhaustion, laying my life down in a living martyrdom, dying daily, agonizing in the sacrificial service of the church. I know myself. I know the sluggishness and backwardness of my own heart. Where am I going to get the resources? Where am I going to get the the motivation? Where am I going to get the fuel for this sacrificial kind of lifestyle? Well, the answer comes in the fifth element of discipleship that we find in this text. We've seen the scheme, the substance, the scope, the strain, and now we come, number five, to the strength of discipleship. The strength of discipleship. Look at me again at verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving, according to His power, which mightily works within me. The strength of discipleship is the almighty power of God's grace at work within you. And this truth totally dominated all of Paul's thinking, all of Paul's practice. The reality of intense, disciplined human effort energized by divine, omnipotent power. 
Galatians 2.20, just write the references. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, but I go on living. They were just intertwined in Paul's life. He couldn't find out where he ended and Christ began. 1 Corinthians 15.10 I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I labored, and yet in a real sense, it wasn't ultimately me, it was the grace of God working in me. And the famous Philippians 2.12 and 13 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Don't underestimate the word for in Philippians 2.13. Not work out your salvation with fear and trembling even though God is at work within you. But because God is at work within you, you work out. And 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We serve, we toil, we labor, we strain by the strength which God supplies. And Paul is absolutely emphatic here. Note the the triple emphasis on God's strength at work within him in Colossians 1.29. Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Those are three occurrences of two Greek words. Dunamis, which is the word used for power and for mightily. It's the word from which we get the English words dynamic or dynamism. And energeo, from which we get the word energy. So this is the dynamic energy of Almighty God that is at work in our souls to strengthen us for this work that He's called us to. Believer, you are not alone. You are not called to this impossible standard without the promise of the energizing grace of God mightily working within you. Let's celebrate it more. Ephesians 3.14, Paul tells the Colossians how he prays for them. He prays, or Paul tells the Ephesians how he prays for them. Maybe that's not Ephesians 3.14. It's it's Colossians 1.9, yeah. In Colossians 1.9 and following, Paul tells the Colossians how he prays for them. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. He prays the same thing for the Ephesians in, three, in Ephesians 3, 14 to 16, which is why I was confused. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. And then he closes Ephesians 3 in verses 20 and 21 with that glorious benediction now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond than all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But what's most striking is how often these two words, dunamis and energeo, appear with appear together with reference to the, to the resurrection of Jesus. Colossians 2.12 Paul likens our conversion to a spiritual resurrection and says, you were raised up with Christ through faith in the energeia of God, the energizing power of God who raised Him from the dead. You were raised just as He raised Christ. So our conversion... In Philippians 3.21, Paul speaks of our glorification as the event when Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And it's by virtue of His resurrection, right, that Christ ascended to heaven and has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And so it's resurrection power that's going to glorify us. It's resurrection power that converted us. It's resurrection power that's going to glorify us. And in addition to conversion and glorification, resurrection power is at work in us everywhere in between in sanctification. And Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 makes this clear. 
Ephesians 1, starting in verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Friends, this means that the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of His Father is that very same energizing power that is mightily at work within us. Supplying us the strength that we need to serve the church in discipleship. We have resurrection power fueling us. So that even when the flesh is weak, Almighty God makes our spirit willing. Even though the outer man is decaying, yet resurrection power renews our inner man day by day. And that means it simply falls to us to trust and obey. To trust the divine power, the promise of this divine power, and to obey the call to labor and strive in proclaiming Christ, in admonishing every man, in teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Well, we've seen the scheme, the substance, the scope, the strain, and the strength of discipleship. And I trust that this exposition of Colossians 1, 28 and 29 was a benefit to you. Having observed script, Scripture's blueprint for effective discipleship in and through the local church, there's only one question left to ask. Friend, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? The Lord Himself declares in Luke 14, 26 and 27, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. If there is anything in your life that you treasure more than Jesus, whether it's family, friends, money, possessions, hobbies, your job, anything, Jesus Himself says you cannot be His disciple. The genuine disciple of Christ has carried His own cross just as Jesus carried His cross and has been crucified to the world. And the world crucified to Him, Galatians 6.14. The disciple of Christ has laid down His claims to lordship of His own life and has totally submitted Himself to the will of His He has abandoned any confidence of Himself in, him, in Himself for righteousness. The disciple knows that all of his deeds, even his righteous deeds, are like filthy rags before the thrice holy God of the universe. And so he has repudiated his sins and repudiated himself and repudiated even his own righteousness, even his own good deeds, and has trusted in the perfect righteousness of Christ alone to be the ground of his standing before God. He looks away from himself. He looks up to the cross where Jesus bore the full exercise of the wrath of his father as punishment for sins. And in my place, the disciple says, in my place, and then he trusts in Christ's life, in Christ's death, in Christ's resurrection, in Christ's works. He trusts that those works are sufficient to forgive sin and to provide righteousness. And therefore, so acquainted with Christ's cross, the disciple carries his own cross. He takes up his cross daily and follows after Christ, not necessarily in death, as we've said, but in a dying living in a living martyrdom, in a continual crucifixion of one's own comforts and preferences. The disciple of Christ, like Christ, lays down his life to follow after and serve Jesus. To put it another way, the disciple of Christ makes disciples of Christ. The disciple of Christ makes disciples of Christ. The motto of his life is we proclaim him. And as he labors... 
he, or, and, he, and he labors to the point of exhaustion and agony to see every Christian complete in Christ. Friend, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, I plead with you to turn from your sin. Repudiate confidence in your own righteousness, your good works, so-called, so to admit you into heaven. They will not do it. Trust in this sufficient Savior who lived and died and rose again on behalf of sinners and who welcomes you to Himself this very moment. Count the cost. Hating father and mother and sister and brothers and even my own life in comparison to my love for Christ. Count the cost. But then look up to the treasure and cry from the depths of your soul with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Cry with him that I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Take up your cross, die to sin and self, and follow after Jesus. Become his disciple. And brothers and sisters, my fellow disciples, let us live as disciples. Let us be disciple-making disciples. Because I assure you, there is no other kind of genuine disciple of Christ. Preach Christ. Admonish one another. Teach one another. Receive admonition. Know the truth. Love the truth. Practice the truth. And teach others the same. And not just some, but every Christian the Lord has given you in the local church. Labor and strive. Agonize over it. Give yourself to one another. Be absorbed in these things because the sovereign power of the triune God is mightily at work within you. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious in power and wonderful in strength. You have raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and have raised us from the grave of spiritual death. And now you, and you will raise our bodies one day from the grave into conformity with the body of Jesus' own glory. Father, by the same power, the same resurrection power, work within us by your Spirit to conform your people into the image of Christ now. And grant us the willing spirit the renewed inner man day by day to lay our lives down on the altar to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ so that everyone would be presented complete in Christ so that you, Lord Jesus, would have the bride that you are worthy of. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.